0: We're going to reach a passage today in Matthew chapter 6 that has to be one of the best known scriptures in all the New Testament. In fact, it's my belief that although most of us probably don't spend much time memorizing scripture, and no show of hands please, I'm not trying to embarrass anyone, but let's be honest, most of us don't spend a lot of time memorizing scripture. Nonetheless, I'll bet you almost everyone in here has memorized this passage. That we're studying today, at least part of it. We're studying the Lord's Prayer today, and the fact that so many of you can probably recite this by memory is a particularly ironic truth given what Jesus is about to teach us about it. But before we get to the prayer, let's remember the context of where we are in this teaching. And you probably won't find a passage in the New Testament where context is more crucial to understanding and to properly interpreting the text than this passage. Because If you lack an appreciation for the context about what Jesus is about to teach in Matthew 6, you will find that you will quickly start doing the very opposite thing from what Jesus himself commands us to do here in this passage. It's such an ironic truth, and you'll see it for yourself. But first, let's get the big picture here. Jesus, as you may remember, is standing on the side of a mountain near the Sea of Galilee on one of the hills that comes up from the sea. He's teaching a crowd, he's in the middle of a sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount because he's up on this high place. And the sermon is principally about setting the record straight on two things, on the kingdom and on righteousness. And in chapter 5, he taught us on the proper biblical view of how you obtain the kingdom, or as we might say today in our vernacular, how you get into heaven. That was chapter 5, and that is that you have to be righteous enough, you have to be good enough to enter heaven. And Jesus said in that chapter, what was the standard that God will use for whether you get into heaven or not? How good must you be? Perfect. Perfect. You must be as perfect as God, or you cannot enter heaven. Now in chapter 6, Jesus is explaining the correct way that someone who is already kingdom-bound, who is already headed to heaven, how that person, or let's say that kingdom citizen, is supposed to live out their righteousness now while they await the kingdom. That's what chapter 6 is about. And Jesus summarizes what he's going to get to in chapter 6 with the opening verse. And let's just look there again. I'm not going to teach on it. We did this last week, but I'm just going to read it for you, or you can read with me. Verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus' concern in this chapter is that you and I would live out our righteousness that we received by faith in Jesus Christ. We would live it out in such a way, in the proper way, that we would receive a full reward in the kingdom. You remember I told you last week, my role as a pastor in this church is to maximize your eternal reward, to make sure that when you show up for your judgment for Jesus, I've done everything I can possibly do, along with everyone else who is a part of this church, to ensure that you stand there and receive a good judgment and get the fullest reward God can provide for your obedience. That's my goal, to get you ready for that moment. And that's what Jesus is trying to stress here, that we live out our righteousness in such a way that we maximize our eternal reward eternal reward not our earthly reward our eternal reward now of course when you live out your righteousness you're doing it in front of somebody it's not as though you do that in secret all the time but jesus said you have to be careful how you do it don't do it in such a way that you're hoping that you would receive the praises of this lost and dying world because if you choose to seek that reward that's the only one you're going to get instead he says practice your righteousness in such a way that you're seeking to please the lord and only him And Jesus said, The Lord who is in heaven and sees what we do will take note of it, noticing our proper heart, and He will reward us in the kingdom to come. Now in both chapter 5 and chapter 6, Jesus used examples to prove His point. We've done this now for a while, so you know where I'm going. And in each of these examples, there's two sides to it. He tells you how the Pharisees of Israel's day, how the leadership of Israel had been doing it wrongly. And then He told the crowd, Don't be like them. Here's the way to do it. Now in... The chapter we're in now, chapter 6, there are four principal examples that we're studying. And they touch on very basic areas of spiritual life. Last week we looked at giving. This week we're looking at prayer. Next week we're looking at fasting. I know you're looking forward to that one. And the week after that will be wealth. These are four basic areas of spiritual life. Those four also happen to be practices that the Pharisees had especially perverted for selfish purposes. So they made for better content to discuss now last week we looked at giving and we learned in that example last week that if you're going to go about giving in such a way giving to the poor giving to the needs of the church if you do that in such a way that you receive earthly praise from someone who sees you or someone in the church etc jesus says that's actually acting as a hypocrite because god he says does not reward hypocrisy remember hypocrisy is pretending you're something you're not And so when you seek for earthly gain, earthly praise, because you give to the poor, you're saying, I'm wanting to portray myself as a benefactor of the poor, but in reality, I'm just serving myself by this action. And Jesus said, God doesn't reward hypocrisy. Jesus said, you have to guard your heart from pride and ego by giving in secret. When you give in secret, well, then you rob your your flesh from its opportunity to steal your eternal reward, and you put yourself in a position where the Lord will reward you. That's a summary of last week. So now, once again, in this lesson today, the issue today will continue to be the nature of our heart as we go about doing these various activities. So that it's not merely what we do that matters, it's the heart behind it, the reason, the motivation, the thinking that's driving the behavior. And God sees both. And that's the difference, by the way, one of many differences between God and men. God not only sees the action, He understands what you were thinking, He understands what your motive was. And he's rewarding you on the full basis of it, not merely on the actions that we take. That's the general context for this chapter. What is your heart attitude? Why do you do what you do? What's your reason for living out righteousness in a certain area of your life? If you go through motions and just seek for appearance's sake to look pious and religious, you're getting a reward here with those you're impressing, and that's the end of it. But who wants that? That's a a reward that perishes with the rest of the world. What we're looking for are eternal things that will not perish, and those things come from God alone, so we must seek to pray, uh, receive His praises alone. We want Him to see we don't have a false heart in what we do. So that's the context. That's the big picture. I spent a moment or two on that because if you don't understand what I just said, if that's not part of our thinking, we will not understand what Jesus is about to say with regard to prayer, and we will make the classic mistake I alluded to. So now let's look at what Jesus says, His second example. We pick up in verse 5. Jesus says, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words, so do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. All right. Remember, each of these examples has the wrong and then the right. And he starts with the wrong again. That is, he says, when we pray, there's a wrong way to do it. There's a wrong way to pray. And I want you to look at the preposition he uses as he opens in verse 7. I don't want to take a lot of time on this. And, and, and just in passing, he says, when you pray. He didn't say if you pray, and I think you probably would have expected me to say that. I'm not the first to make that observation. And I could preach for a while, on the necessity of prayer, and you may expect that at this point. But remember what I said last week when I was talking about giving? I'm constrained by this text, and that's a good thing. It's not my attitude or my opinions that matter. It's not my thinking about prayer that matters. It's only what's on the page today that matters. We're going to talk about what's on the page. and. In this page, in the matter of prayer, Jesus focuses on something very specific. The heart of the one praying. That's what we're going to focus on. Not on the necessity of it, not on the duration of it. Not on, that's stuff we can talk about later in another day when that happens to be on the page. But what's on the page today is this idea of your heart attitude when you conduct yourself in these various areas of life. So this is about the heart of the one who prays. And Jesus is saying, if we're praying merely to impress other people, as he mentions here, with with many words being spoken in front of a crowd, Jesus says, well, you're not going to receive a reward. So the question is, when you pray, let's start with this question, when you pray in any context, are you praying to impress someone, or are you praying to communicate with your Heavenly Father? That's the distinction. And I think we probably can all... remember an example somewhere in our past where we were in some setting whether it's a small group maybe or uh, before a basketball game with a group of christian guys who pray at the center of the court or you know with someone at dinner it's, it really is worse when it's someone at dinner and they just can't stop praying you with that person it's like okay i got it he's you know but they just have to impress you it seems i mean sometimes it's just a sincere person but don't you wonder like okay we got it you know how to pray can i eat now please can we just move on <laughs> All right? The question is, when you pray, what's in the heart? Not what comes out of your mouth, not, not how you look. What's in your heart? Are you communicating or are you impressing? One of those ways is wrong and it gains nothing from God and the other one is correct and it gives opportunity for you. Now in verse 7, Jesus says, the wrong way, and I want to look at the words very carefully here because they tell you something about what he's concerned in. He says, the wrong way to pray... Always involves using meaningless repetition of words. This is a very important spiritual insight for us tonight. When someone is praying with the wrong heart, they will always use meaningless repetition. Always. And he says, do not engage in that. Do not use ritualistic, meaningless repetition and call it prayer. Do not use the same words over and over again. Jesus says, that is not a prayer we should label it properly a mantra or a chant. It's not praying. I don't care how pious and religious it looks. The word in Greek that our Bible has translated, meaningless repetition, that's how my Bible reads it in English. That's actually one word in Greek, meaningless repetition. It's the word in Greek for babbling. Or it can also be translated stammering, like someone who has a stutter. In Greek, you would use the same word to refer to what an 18-month-old child does when it's talking. That's the word in Greek. So when you use mindless repetition of words, thinking that you're praying, that's how God hears you. That's, it's God's word describing it in those terms. That is, it's like a parent listening to a babbling infant. And it's meaningless, Jesus says. It's useless, it's not prayer. And he dismisses those tactics this way. He says, it's like praying the way Gentiles pray. Now, I'm talking to a room of Gentiles, and I am a Gentile, so before we get insulted at that derogatory statement, you have to understand in context what he's saying. Remember, Jesus is a Jew, and he's speaking to Jews, principally. And at this point in history, as he stands on the mount only the Jewish people at this point in history had received the revelation of the true God, Jehovah. The Gentiles had not yet received that, apart from an occasional Gentile. But in general, the word of God, the knowledge of the truth of God, had not been sent out to the Gentiles yet. So at this stage in history, only the Jewish people had a relationship with God, generally speaking. So therefore, for a Jew, the phrase, to pray like a Gentile, is synonymous with praying like an unbeliever would pray. You see that? Now today we wouldn't be able to use that statement in the same way because it's no longer the case that only the Jews know about the true living God. Obviously Gentiles worldwide now do, through Christ. But in his context, that's what he's saying. So let's use that change in terms and you'll see what he was saying more clearly. He's saying, do not pray as unbelievers pray. For some, the concept of unbelievers praying is a bit strange to begin with, but you see it all the time, right? Gentiles use repetition, and they call it praying. God's children should not do that. God's children should not approach our Father who is in heaven and pray as if we didn't know Him, which is what babbling or repetition does. Using meaningless repetition and calling it prayer is approaching God in the way an unsaved person approaches God. And we have many examples. Buddhists chant. Catholics recite the rosary. Jews recite daily prayer. There are many, by the way, who are unsaved in the Protestant churches who are reciting liturgy every Sunday and calling it prayer. And you've probably seen that happening too, right? In all cases, and I love my Christian brothers and sisters who are, who are making this mistake. I'm not judging them. What I'm saying is what the text says. And if you use meaningless repetition in place of true prayer, it is the mark of unbelief, Or it's a Christian who is trapped in living out this unbelieving style of prayer, thinking that they're supposed to do it. Understanding this connection is really important, friends. Understanding the connection between a lack of saving faith and a reliance on mantra, that's an important understanding in in looking at this the way God does. Prayer is, by definition, a form of communication. And if you've done any kind of basic study in college about communication, you know that communication requires a sender and a receiver and a message. And it comes with something of importance out of the heart, especially when you're talking about initiating a conversation with the creator of the universe, right? This is not casual conversation we're talking about here. You have a a thought through concern, a heart concern, and you're trying to put it before the one who has the power to do anything and everything. Right? That's a very important moment of communication. It's personal. It's specific. It's directed to an audience that you should know intimately, based on faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're someone who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've not been saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross, then you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says. And therefore, without faith in Jesus, you have no intercessor before the Father, no high priest. And consequently, someone who's in that situation who has no connection to the Father through Jesus, they're they're like demons in a sense, is the way James says it. They know of God, but they do not know God. They can say God exists, but they don't have any relationship with Him. And knowing that, spiritually speaking, it means you're grasping in the dark as an unbeliever. You're operating without any wisdom or understanding of this God you're trying to talk to. And therefore, what do you do? This is where human nature connects with the text. When you don't know someone and you have no relationship with them, no basis for communicating with them, no sense that they hear you or what they say in response, a complete disconnect exists. In that respect, all you have is mantra. All you have left are magic words, things people have said, say this over and over again and good things will happen. There's no other basis for communicating when you don't know who you're talking to. At the end of verse 7, Jesus explains why unbelievers engage in this kind of meaningless repetition and call it prayer. He says, because they're hoping to achieve something from this behavior. I say it this way. They're hoping to make up in quantity what they lack in quality. You know, If you've ever been trapped in a religion like that, that doesn't know the Lord, doesn't have the gospel, but relies on all this mantra and repetition... I can tell you from personal experience what that feels like. There's a side of your brain that says, this is all nonsense and everybody's just doing it anyway. Why are we doing this nonsense? And I don't even want to be here. And you just keep doing it because you're taught to do it. And then there's the other side of you that's like, well, maybe something magical will happen if I just keep it up. Superstition kicks in at that point. you know. And you're just in the crowd, moving with the crowd, and the whole thing just has a sense of, I don't understand it either, but somebody must have figured it out. I don't know why we do this. It's not a relationship. You're not speaking with God, you're speaking at God. And it has no effect on him. You're not impressing him by your many words, Jesus said. It's a form of superstitious behavior, and I think an element of it is you feel like you're making a personal sacrifice, don't you? Cuz it's it's not fun. It's not fun to sit there and repeat the same 17 words over and over and over again in a mindless way. Stay focused and not fall asleep. And if you can do that for several hours, as some religions like to teach people to do, and you get done with it, you feel like that's got to be good for something with God because that was a pain in the neck. You know? You have that sense of like, I've put in my time, I've put in the effort, God's got to give me something for that. (laughs) That's not how our relationship with God works. He doesn't need anything you have. He owns the world. There is nothing you can do for God that God needs. There is not an act of human power that could possibly impress a God who made everything. You get it? I mean, it's, it's completely ridiculous on its face that someone constructs a theology that says, God loves it when you do these things for Him. Like, He needs anything. If He needs you, He's not God. He's your neighbor. You know, He's your boss. Gods don't need the things they create to do things for them. It's a bankrupt concept. And yet, for many, that's the the reasoning behind so much time invested in mantra thinking that somehow they've improved their status with God. It doesn't work that way. God said He's not impressed. Remember, the scriptures say that the blood of Christ has made possible our approaching the throne of God boldly. We have this opportunity to stand before the Creator through Christ and make an appeal. That is a high honor. That is an incredible privilege. I don't think we really grasp at this side of heaven. I don't think till we're standing in the presence of God will we fully grasp just how amazing that is, that we had that opportunity. And Jesus had to die to make that possible, the scriptures say. And so if we're taking that opportunity and just tossing it aside and exchanging it for mindless chanting, I think it's fair to say we're trampling the grace of God at that point. I'm not saying your salvation's at risk. Clearly, that's not even, impo- not even possible. I'm saying as a believer, if we get trapped in this kind of thinking and we think we're helping ourselves or helping God, we're just trampling grace. We've turned down the opportunity to have a meaningful conversation with the Creator who opened that opportunity for us by His own death and replacing it with something of our own making that we think does something for God. We're acting like unbelievers instead of like children of God. That's the way the Pharisees worked In Jesus' day, they instructed Israel to practice prayer in that repetitious way. But what's interesting is, historically, that's not the way Judaism worked. Historically, from the beginning, Jewish prayer was always extemporaneous. Off the cuff, thought up in the moment, not prepared. And you see examples of that in the Old Testament. If you go back and look at Old Testament characters that you know well, like Moses or David or maybe some of the, the lesser-known ones like Nehemiah, if you go read some of the things that they either have written themselves or has written about them, they'll at times you'll see prayers of these men recorded in Scripture. Go look at them. They're not recitations of something that was already written. It's off the cuff, from the heart, communicating with God. Now it's in Scripture. Sure, we can read it and repeat it, but that doesn't mean it was in the beginning. It was from their heart. That's how those men prayed, crying out to God. And then you have the Pharisees. By the time Jesus came, the unbelieving Pharisees had instituted repetitious prayer as the only authorized way Jews could pray. And in Jesus' day, they had prayer books for every Jew that dictated every single prayer that every Jew gave under every circumstance. There were daily prayer books. There were Sabbath prayer books. There were prayer books for holy days. There were prayer books for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and on and on and on. And within a few centuries... They had transformed Jewish prayer from extemporaneous, heartfelt prayer to just mantras of pre-written, prescribed prayer. And it's still happening today. Ever since the pharisaical input prior to Jesus' coming, it's, re- it's re- remained that way today. And if you meet a Jew today, an unbelieving Jew today, and you ask them anything about how they pray, every single pray, pray, uh, prayer they make is prescribed by some book that they're told to go look at and read. There is no extemporaneous prayer, generally, in Jewish life mindless repetition took the place of meaningful conversation. So Jesus tells us, don't pray that way, friends, because you're being hypocritical. Here's how you're being hypocritical. You're engaging in something that is, ostensibly, about communicating with God. That's what prayer is, right? And yet, in the way you're practicing it, you are turning off your brain. You are disengaging your own heart and thought And in place of it, you're reading somebody else's prepared, mindless chant. And more than likely repeating it over and over again. You're going through the motions. You're acting pious. You look godly. It's a show, friends. It's hypocritical. And not that you necessarily thought of it that way in the moment. I don't think most of us ever think about being hypocritical when we're actually being hypocritical. The point is how God saw it. What God saw was someone who said, "I'm praying to you, God." And you just kept going, and God's like, "That's not talking. That's babbling. Get back to me when you have something real to say." I mean, right? I mean, those are my words, but that's what you think. That's what He's getting at. I don't pretend to know exactly what God would have said, but that's sort of in the vein of it. Mindless repetition doesn't engage your heart. Doesn't engage your mind. It just puts your spirit to sleep. It gives opportunity. In fact, I think for the enemy to influence your thoughts in the middle of that mindless chanting. Have you ever thought of that? I think that's why chanting and similar forms of meditation are such a big part of Eastern mysticism. In the way the body and the mind work together, if I engage in a mindless chant and I keep it up long enough, it's almost mind-numbing. And in that way, it opens up, I think, opportunity for the enemy to step in place of our own thoughts and begin to influence So I think it's dangerous. And you don't have to look very hard today to find true Christians who are doing this, unfortunately, misled or or mistaught or whatever it is. Because I'll know, and you know this, I mean, I don't think I'm surprising too many people when I say this, but you can go to most churches on a Sunday, many of them anyway, and you'll still find congregations being taught to recite prepared prayers together as a congregation. And in many Christian families, you'll see the same meaningless prayer repeated over dinner every night, and we call it grace. Grace. And Christian parents are sitting at bedsides at night teaching their children to chant the same mantra every night before they go to bed, and we call it bedtime prayers. I'm guilty of that at times. All right? I'm not picking on anybody. It's by not knowing what Jesus said that we can ironically end up doing the exact opposite of what he wanted us to do. That's why we're studying this today, right? so that we can get on track with what he wants. There's a recent book that many of you may have read, not too recent, it's a few years old now, but it was popular in its day, and the book taught that there was this obscure Old Testament figure who prayed a prayer to God, and if you repeated that man's particular prayer, that you could unlock God's blessing as he received it. And it suggested that's all you need to do, just repeat that man's little prayer, and suddenly the world opens up to you. Who, who would have thought it? Right there in the Bible, this, this obscure little thing, and we never knew it was so important. If you think like that, not only are you violating Jesus' words here, obviously, but you're looking at God like a genie. You, know, you don't necessarily say that to yourself, I get it. But let's be honest, if the thought is this, I say these special words, and God in heaven is obligated to do things for me, define the difference between that and rubbing an oil lamp and a genie comes out. Explain how those are different. They're really not. And I know we don't want to think that we do that. I know that. But the truth is, if you're not informed from Scripture properly, the tendency is for the flesh to kick in and bad teaching to come into play. And then all of a sudden, we're doing things we never would have wanted to do if we'd just known the truth. Well, welcome to knowing the truth. Here it is. Prayer is supposed to be a conversation with God. A mantra is not conversation. And by the way, one last point. If you doubt that what I'm saying is true, let's try this experiment at home this week. Every time you want something from your spouse, gentlemen... I want you to repeat the same statement over and over again until you get it. And I want you to tell me next week how effective that strategy was. Now, some of the wives in the room are probably saying, I've tried that with my husband and it didn't work, see? And I also bet there are some parents in the room who are thinking, you know, that's exactly what my kids try to do with me sometimes, right? Repeat the same thing over and over, hoping they'll get what they want. Let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about that example. When they do that, how does that make you feel as a parent? Yeah, thank you for that. That's like an amen from the audience, all right. I mean, does it feel like they're trying to engage in a conversation with you? Is that how you perceive it? Does it feel like they're building a relationship with you? Or does it feel annoying? Or does it feel like they're trying to manipulate you or browbeat you? Right, It's obvious what that's about, right? Now, what if this happened? If instead of trying to wear you down with meaningless repetition, what if your child just simply began a conversation with you in the store, and they began making this sincere, well-considered request? They had logic, they had ideas, they had reasoning. And then, depending on your response, the child then engaged in a respectful exchange, seeking to, to r- arrive at a compromise or a better understanding and perhaps make some suggestions or a rational appeal. Or, I mean, first of all, you would say, who are you and what did you do with my child? <laughs> but secondly, I mean, assuming that kind of thing could happen, wouldn't you be delighted? And wouldn't you be amazed that your child was working in such a patient and reasonable way to work with you, Right? Now, consider this. Add one more detail. Isn't it true that in most cases, if something like that's happening, they're trying to get their way or whatever, don't you know what your answer's going to be even before they started begging? Right? You kind of knew what was coming. You're in the grocery store aisle. There's the candy. We know this thing's coming, right? So you already know what you're going to say. And so knowing you were going to give them an answer already before you even heard their request, nevertheless, if the child had gone through that rational conversation, you still would have been pleased, right? Right? That It's not a burden to be engaged in a conversation with a child, even when you know what the answer needs to be before it starts, because in that situation, the exchange doesn't... It's not about settling the issue. You're the parent. You've already got the decision. It doesn't matter what they say in this case, right? The point of that exchange is, I have an opportunity as a parent to build a relationship with my child, teaching them to appreciate my wisdom in this matter, so that in the future they might see it from my perspective, hopefully. I mean, that's the whole point of a conversation in any case, but especially in that kind of situation. Now, look at everything we just looked at. A parent who already knows what the answer is before you ask, always knows what the right thing is and is determined to give it to you, but wants a conversation so that in time they can build your wisdom so that you might reach their point, not them being pulled down to the lower point. You see the the comparison, right? That's exactly why the Father wants you to pray. That's the whole point of prayer. It's to engage us in a meaningful conversation with our Creator. It's not to wear Him down so that He would end up doing something that is wrong for us, but we want it anyway. Mindless repetition is not going to achieve that outcome with a God who knows everything and has all power. He's all-knowing, He's wise, and He's perfect. And by comparison, just to set the record straight, you know nothing. You understand nothing, and you are imperfect in everything you do. And I I should add myself in there too. Jesus said the Father already knows what you need before you ask. It's just like a good parent would. So the more time we spend in communicating with God, the better things will be for us. And that's why I said earlier, don't waste those opportunities by resorting to babbling like an infant, which is what repeating mindless words sounds like to God. Incessant repetition does nothing to change God's mind. It just means you missed an opportunity to get to know Him. So that's what we don't do, obviously. So now, how do we pray? And we now get to His prescription. It's in verse 9. And obviously you could preach so long on this because it's such a well-known passage. But again, I'm constrained by the text. His point in offering this is not that we would dissect it to its minutiae, His point is, get the big picture of what someone whose heart is directed toward conversation will say. What is the kind of thing that should come out of that person's mouth? Here's the example, verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, before we look at the content here of this prayer, let's acknowledge something that I hope everybody is probably sees coming at this point. This prayer has led to perhaps the greatest irony in all the Bible. In this case, the irony is that many Christians use this prayer in a way that is deliberately contrary to what Jesus expects us to do with this prayer. You see that now, right? He just finished teaching the church, do not engage in repetitious prayer. And yet, what prayer do Christians mindlessly repeat, perhaps more than any other? The Our Father, we call it, right? I mean, if I started saying it, we just read it, if I started saying it, how many of your mouths would start moving with me as you heard it, right? (laughs) People commonly chant verses 9 through 13 in unison, even though Jesus said in verse 7, don't do that. You can't make this stuff up. I'm talking about in real churches with real believers who are taught by real people who know the Bible. It's just somehow this thing has got... You know, We we frame it on a wall, and we say, this is something special. Well, it's Scripture, and all Scripture is special. But Jesus did not want us to take His model for prayer and do the very thing with it. He just said you're not supposed to do. So knowing that, what did He want us to do with it? Well, every good conversation has sensible structure and logic, So even though your prayer is not supposed to be just repetitive words, that doesn't mean it's not supposed to be planned and thoughtfully constructed. It's not supposed to be haphazard. You're supposed to think about how you do it. That's all he was getting at. In verse 9, he says, Pray, notice, pray in this way. He didn't say, pray this prayer. He didn't say, pray these words. He said, pray in this way. And praying in this way means according to this example not literally verbatim what i'm saying to you because as soon as you take it and make it verbatim it's no longer your words it's no longer communication it's no longer prayer earlier david had us read this together right and i wonder if some of you are thinking didn't we just make the very mistake he said not to do right and i could tell you well it's a shame david didn't ask me about the sermon before he did but that's not true at all we talked about it what david had us do was read scripture together that's always appropriate what he didn't say is let's all pray and then read it, because then we'd be making the very mistake we're talking about here. This is a model. This is a model that we could say verbatim if we were to do it as part of reading Scripture, or even, this might confuse you, even if you're praying Scripture to God, you could read this, just like you might pray the Psalms or something else. But here again, that would only be if your reading of Scripture was a part of a larger prayer in which the rest of it was from you. So if you sat down to have a 30-minute time of prayer and part of it was praying Scripture to God and then part of it was your, 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 your needs and some of it was something else, then that would be fine. But for people who think just saying these words is the end of prayer and they're done, that's the problem. That's not right. So let's look at the structure. Jesus' example has six parts. Each part should be present in your prayer life, given his example. Now, I'm not saying that in every moment you pray, you should always have all six parts in every prayer. I don't think that's expected. I think what he's saying is that in general, our prayer life should touch on all six of these areas at least periodically. And in some cases, your prayer will have enough time to allow for all, and in other cases, you have a focused moment for some piece of those six. That's fine. Just be aware that your prayer life needs to look at all six of these areas. The first part... Is the destination. And I find this to be an interesting correction for many people, all of its own. It's surprising to many people that Jesus says in verse 9, Your prayer should always be directed to the Father. Period. The person of God, among those of the Godhead, the people the persons of the Godhead, the person of God who receives prayer is the Father, not Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, but the Father. Jesus and the Holy Spirit play roles in prayer, of course. Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, is our high priest. He intercedes on our behalf with the Father. It's by His blood that our petitions may come before a holy God. And the Holy Spirit is our teacher who guides us in our prayer life, and He instructs us on when and how to pray, Scripture says. But the audience for your prayer is always the Father. So if in the past you just happen to casually say, Dear Jesus, you know, get me through this test. Uh, that I'm taking at school, or dear Jesus, you know, help me say the right thing to my father when he, when he comes home, or whatever. Um, Now you understand that was incorrect. I'm not saying God didn't hear your prayer. I fully believe that in our ignorance, he looks past those things and he hears our heart. What I am saying is you've now been informed. You now know the truth. You should do as you've been taught. Direct your prayers to the father only, By faith in Christ, the Bible says you have been adopted into the family of God. You've been made a fellow heir with Christ. You now have peace with the Father. So as you pray, recognize you are speaking to your heavenly Father, Abba, Father, not to some nameless, faceless God, some ogre in the sky, some mystical force. You're praying to a God who has chosen to portray himself to you as father to a child. And that's an encouragement to us that we would come before him. That's point one. So as you begin your prayer, say Father, Heavenly Father. Secondly, Jesus says at the end of verse 9 that we should declare hallowed be your name. The word hallowed just means sanctified or holy or set apart. So we're saying God is holy. He alone is holy. He alone is set apart from the rest of creation. He is unequaled. He is unique in all time and space. Nothing can compare to the Creator. That's what we're saying. And in other words, his point is, your prayer life should include some time glorifying the Father for who he is glorifying god it's an opportunity if you will to have a private worship moment to speak from your heart about what you know of god from the word and glorify him for who he is in your prayer life just devote some of your time to that and i have found that when you make that a part of your prayer life as a part of how you structure your prayer time that it sets your heart in the right place for the rest of your prayer you elevate god you put him in his proper place and by definition you put yourself in the proper place and your petitions before god have will tend to change when you have a lofty view of god when he is diminished in some respect he starts to become a little too much like an order taker like a genie as i said earlier but when he is who he really is from scripture you'll be more careful about what you ask for you'll be a little more conscious of this moment before creator god i need to be very careful in how i approach him right now in a healthy sense So he asks that there be a time in our prayers devoted to acknowledging him for who he is. Thirdly, in verse 10, he said that our prayers should be kingdom-minded. He gives us an example here of praying for the arrival of the kingdom and the realization of God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a really great insight for your prayer life. And I hope you embrace it in the way he intends it here. What he's saying is this, and I'll use my own phrase again. He wants you to have eyes for eternity in your prayer life. That is, our our lives on earth here will always give us ample material to pray about. As long as you live on this earth, you will never run out of things you can be praying to God about in your own life and in the lives of others you know. There's always a list somewhere, right? And that's okay. But... There will be a point when this world is gone. There will be a point when your earthly problems are no more. And not just yours, everybody's. All right, There is a point where that's going to come to its end, and it's, it's actually sooner than most people realize, according to what Scripture tells us. One day Jesus returns. One day he sets up his kingdom here on this earth. When that happens, you and I will be in new eternal bodies. Those bodies, Christ says, uh, Scripture says, will never die. They will no longer suffer from sin and the consequences of sin. We will be serving Christ without shame and in glory. That's the true life we've been promised. That's really the life that is eternal. You know, this life's kind of fake and passing. That's the real life that we're all waiting for. That's the one that lasts. So in light of how important that is, and how long that lasts, and how temporary and passing this life is, think about which deserves more of your prayer attention. You see, that's, that's living with eyes for eternity. That's seeing a bigger picture. So don't spend all your time praying about the fleeting concerns of this world. They're important enough that they need prayer too, but don't make that all that you do. Make sure you spend at least some time praying about the eternal things to come. And you may ask yourself, well, what does that kind of a prayer look like? Well, why don't you pray for a good reward? Why don't you pray that God would sustain your obedience, give you a heart to obey, encourage you in that, so that when you show up, you'll have a greater reward. There's nothing wrong with praying for that. In fact, it's going to lead you to go in a good direction if you pray for that. Ask Him to pray for the strength you need to earn that good reward. How about praying for a good position in Christ's government? Again, this may be news to some of you, but in future studies, I'm sure we'll do more on this. But in the government that comes to rule in the kingdom that God sets up in Christ's that Christ sets up, those who are believers rule with him. And our position in that government depends on our testimony now, Christ says. Most of all, why don't you just pray in excitement and expectation for the chance to see that world sooner than later? I mean, all of these things direct your heart off of the here and now into things that are much more lasting. That's the third thing. We should be kingdom-minded in our prayers. Fourthly, Jesus says in verse 11, Pray for your daily bread, which is actually a statement intended to mean a broader set of things than just food. He's asking you to pray for your personal needs. This is the point in your prayer where you get to say all those things about, you know, Aunt so and so's knee and my job situation and my spouse's, you know, situation and so on. That's where this comes in. This is where you want to include those needs. Remember, this is a model, it's not a prescription, which means we aren't all necessarily going to have to pray for daily bread. Another way to say it is this, your biggest concern today may not be your paycheck or your bank account or your provision. Uh, You may have so much that it's actually weighing you down. Your problem may be distractions. Your problem may be the way those things are corrupting your heart. So when you say, I want to pray for my daily bread, it doesn't mean you pray for more of what you have in that respect. Your prayers there need to be on other issues and on God's daily provision in other ways. But all of us have daily needs. All of us should be looking to the Father in that respect. That's what he's asked us to do, and he's certainly encouraged us to do that here. But you notice where it falls out in the pecking order, in the priority scheme of what God is giving us here in this example? It comes after praising God's goodness and his sovereignty. It comes after turning your attention to the kingdom matters, the things that are eternal. In other words, that's a healthier way to approach your prayer life. Put those other things before your personal needs because they are more lasting and more important in the long run than the daily needs you have. I am not suggesting God doesn't care about your daily needs. If He didn't, it wouldn't be in the prayer at all. What I'm saying is, there is a priority here. I'd also tell you this. If your prayer life is dominated by personal concerns, it probably means your eyes are directed downwards, spiritually speaking, too much. You're thinking too much about what being a Christian means in this world, and not enough about what being saved means for eternity. And this world will bring you down. As Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, you will have tribulation in this world. But he says, have no fear, for I have overcome the world. You're not supposed to be worried about this place too much. You're supposed to be looking about what's coming next. You've got to reverse that perspective. Live with eyes for eternity, knowing that you're leaving this world soon. Fifth, Jesus says, make room in your prayer life for forgiveness, both for yourself and for others. Now, in this particular example, this particular point, the fifth point, Jesus comes back to this issue after he finishes the model. Look, if you just scan down your Bible, look at verses 14 and 15. He gets back to this topic of forgiveness again. Because he does, I'm not going to spend any more time on that point tonight. I'm going to wait till next week when we pick up at verse 14 and we'll actually look in more detail at why he chose to single out that particular thought from among the other six, from the other five, okay? It's enough to simply say this tonight. We should spend time in our prayer confessing our sins to the Lord and seeking His forgiveness and being mindful of others we should be forgiving. And we'll come back to the details of that next week. Moving on then to the last, the sixth one. Jesus says our prayers should include protection, a request for protection from spiritual warfare. Satan is real. I'm assuming that's not news to most of you, but perhaps for some it is. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not some mythical character. He is a real character, a real person, if you will. So are the demonic angels that followed him in rebellion against the Father. They are present in this world. They are operating continuously. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them are in this room right now. They are around. They are aware of who their enemies are, meaning you guys. As a Christian, we have little bullseyes on our backs when it comes to spiritual warfare. That's how it works. And We know they exist, they know we exist, and therefore, I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know to what degree, but I can tell you we are all going to experience their attacks from time to time, and I should also say, as a general rule, the more effective you are in your witness for Christ, the more you're going to feel the heat. And I like to say this as a general rule, if you've never suffered spiritual attack in your life, it's a sign that you have no witness, Why do they bother picking on the people who have already selected themselves out of the game? So when you feel that, when you see that happening, or just knowing that it's going to happen, we need prayer cover to withstand their schemes. And what Jesus tells us to pray is that the Lord would protect us from falling for their schemes, for the way they tempt us into doing the things we really don't want to do. The wording of verse 13 is kind of an unfortunate thing in the English because it makes it sound as if, there is a possibility the Father might lead us into temptation, and that we're asking him, don't do that to us. That's just an unfortunate consequence of the translation. In the original Greek, what Jesus says simply is, lead us away from the enemy's temptations. Lead us away from his temptations. So he's there, and his temptations are going to come. What we're saying to the Father is, don't let us fall into those stupid traps again. Would you please get me out of the way the next time a temptation is placed before me by Satan? And that's what we should be praying. So in summary... We don't want to practice our prayer life in a hypocritical fashion, which is to say we don't want to rely on someone else's words that we repeat mindlessly and call it prayer. It's lazy, it's mind-numbing, and it's not communicating with God. It's self-serving and it's hypocritical. Instead, go before the Father boldly, taking full advantage of what He has made available to us in Christ, dying for us so that we might have that opportunity, and engage in a meaningful conversation with Him. And in that conversation, structure what you're going to say in such a way that you touch upon these six major areas, if not every time, at least once in a while, because that's what Jesus said, pleases the Father. That's where we have the most opportunity to receive reward. And I think it should be obvious that I'm talking now in terms of two kinds of reward. There's the first and obvious way of hearing back from the Father, of our prayer life being effective. And then there is the second issue, which runs throughout this chapter, of eternal reward. And I need to leave you with that thought because I doubt many of us have actually considered that. Have you considered that eternal rewards depend to some degree on your prayer life? On whether you pray? On whether you pray hypocritically or otherwise? On what content you put before God? The nature of your heart in prayer? In other words, if you have any doubt about why you should be praying, even if you think, well, maybe he won't answer this prayer, maybe he won't give me what I want, friends, there's still the eternal waiting It's not a selfish game. It's intended to reward the heart of the person who's seeking to please God and doing it in a way that makes us more like Him. All right, that's what I want you to anticipate this week. So as we close my part today, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to use all six parts. Heavenly Father, we glorify You here, Father. We love You, and we acknowledge You, Father, as our sovereign Lord and King. And we acknowledge, Father, that You know all things, have done all things. We know, Father, that you are uh, so far and beyond our ability to understand or do anything that we rely fully on you. And we're so thankful, Father, for your glory and for your your grace and your mercy in our life. We thank you, Father, that you've given us this opportunity to approach boldly. And, Father, your name is, is above all names. Your word, Father, is a lamp to our feet, it is our daily bread, and we're thankful for it. And Father, as we look forward to a kingdom to come, we ask, Father, that you would be preparing our hearts for that kingdom. We want to serve you not just now, but especially in the kingdom, Father. We ask, Lord, that in what you have prepared for us there, that you would show us how to, how to please you the most now, to prepare us the best now so that we would serve you the best then. Don't let us fall prey to the world and its distractions so that we would not be ready for the day you come, and we would not be ready to serve you in the kingdom that we wait for so much father we ask lord that for that day that when it comes that it would be in all its glory and would give us a chance to see what true justice and righteousness looks like lived out that's what we yearn for father and we've asked father for needs this room is filled with needs tonight father and i don't know most of them so father we just raise them to you collectively knowing you knew these things before we started and that all are before you now in the in the presence of our high priest who is interceding for us on these things father And we ask, Father, that you would consider our sins, though they've been paid for on the cross, and we know that, Father. They still interfere with our our walk with you and our fellowship. We ask, Father, your forgiveness. Do not hold them against us and do not bring their consequences upon our head. We ask, Father, you would just free us from them. And that if we harbor resentment and unforgiveness in our heart for those around us, Father, you would help us see that and confess to them as well so that we can be made right with them even as we are made right with you. And lastly, Father, we know that the enemy is ever-present in our life. Certainly, he is not pleased when we speak your word and we teach it the way we do. We know, Lord, he is at work always to stop it. But, Lord, wherever he has placed a scheme designed to trap us, Father, I pray you would find a way to alert us to it, give us courage to step away and to move beyond it. Don't let us fall, become his victim, Father, and fall to his schemes. Father, all these things we put before you by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, for this church and for those who have attended, Lord. I pray that you continue to use us to glorify your name in this city and beyond. We pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.